This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Bring spring color inside this season with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bare exclusive color Arrowhead Lake or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass or accent your bedroom with sunrise-inspired colors like coral cloud and dark crimson. Let your creativity bloom this spring with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. This is an iHeart Original. William Challoner was raving. His face was slick with sweat. His eyes were rolling. He ripped off his clothes, literally tore them to pieces, and ran stark naked around the ward at midnight. The warders managed to catch him, bind him hand and foot, and confine him to his bed, where he was now being taunted by the devil himself, crouched in the corner of his cell, laughing and hissing at him. Don't! Don't let him take me! I pray you, good sir, please! Or was he? The sinews of his roguery, money, being gone too, and his pretended services all blasted, he had little hopes left. And, being of a very cowardly nature, the apprehension of what he might come to struck him into a fit of sickness and wrought so strong upon his brain that he was sometimes delirious, in which fits he was continually raving that the devil was come for him in such frightful whimsies. These intervals of lunacy he endeavoured to improve to a height sufficient to put off his approaching trial, counterfeiting the madman as well he could. Challoner could have been faking it, after all, Faking it was something that he was very, very good at. But he also might not have been. When Challoner had arrived at Newgate in October of the previous year, he was confident that he could figure a way out of this jam. But Challoner didn't know what he was up against. When he arrived there, he made very light of the matter, bragging he had a trick left yet. But when he heard how many witnesses came in against him, he began to droop. Challoner had, by now, spent... Months in Newgate. Filthy, disgusting Newgate. And without the money that had buoyed him through his last stint in Newgate, things were bleak. 
It was winter, cold and wet, and the walls wept with damp. He slept on straw covering a bare board. He couldn't afford to send out for nicer or even palatable food. And he was drinking the filthy, disease-riddled water that everyone else was. And in that time, he'd seen his hopes extinguished one after the other until all he was left with was the dark fact of his impending death. It was enough to send someone mad. But in all honesty, it didn't matter whether Chaloner was really suffering a mental health episode. It's not like there's an insanity plea in the 17th century, for one thing. And for another, time for William Chaloner was running out. But alas, all would not do. The sessions came, in which his long-concealed villainies were to be laid open to the world. And justice, which often had attempted, as had oft been baffled by him, was now ready with her iron hands to break him to pieces. For iHeartRadio, I'm Linda Rodriguez-McRobbie, and this is Newton's Law. Episode 8. Our final episode, Cashed Out. Defense. While Chaloner wasted away in Newgate, Isaac Newton was busy. Chaloner's trial would take place at the next sessions, although when exactly that would be was uncertain. But Newton needed the time to make sure that his case against Chaloner was rock solid. Newton spent the first few months of 1699 deep in the Chaloner case, collecting the depositions of scores of witnesses who could testify that they'd seen Chaloner plying his terrible craft. And crucially, Newton made sure that these witnesses weren't going to do a runner or get cold feet when the sessions came around. Tom Levinson, author of Newton and the Counterfeiter. One of the things I think Newton learns from this first defeat is that he has to arrest and confine the people who have the goods on Chaloner and offer them, you know, whatever it takes to get them to tell the story he wanted to hear about Chaloner uh, and not let them get away, you know, get to a position where Chaloner's techniques could, could influence them. Newton's principal informant was Thomas Carter, the man who'd been in with Chaloner on the malt ticket scam. Carter knew that giving the warden all the information he could was his only chance of making it out of Newgate alive, that all his hopes lay in giving Newton everything he needed to hang Chaloner. I can produce another to justify it besides myself, and I believe I can produce some of his work. All this which he has said, I can bring good witness to justify it. I humbly lay myself at your honour's feet, hoping your honour's favour as I shall endeavour to deserve it. Carter became Newton's man on the inside, 
and he connected Newton with a bunch of informants. And one of the things Newton did uh, was put informants and spies basically next to Chaloner in the cells. And Chaloner was clever enough to know that this was likely to happen. So he basically disdained the first couple that uh, Newton put in and, and sort of diagnosed them as potential spies. Uh, but Newton just kept putting people in. And finally, Chaloner actually began to speak more openly uh, to one of Newton's agents. John Ignatius Lawson was a former doctor turned coiner who was desperate to be of use. Lawson told Newton that he was starving and that since he'd been locked up, some of his past Confederates had stolen all of his money and property and starved one of his children to death and sent the rest a begging. Lawson was the perfect spy. He and Chaloner had never worked together. So that meant that Chaloner wasn't worried that Lawson could testify against him directly. Lawson was able to get close to Chaloner, even sleeping in the same cell. Lawson was later tried for coining in October 1699, but he got off on a technicality, a matter of jurisdiction. Or, and this seems like it's more likely, a matter of past usefulness. Lawson told Newton who Chaloner was worried would testify against him. Carter, of course, and his wife, Catherine, and the Holloways, but also some new names. This gave Newton more people to find to testify against Chaloner. Lawson was also the one who told Newton that Chaloner was, quote, feigning madness in order to delay his trial. William Chaloner, being my chambermate, owned to me that when the sessions came and if he found himself in danger, he would pretend himself sick. Chaloner obviously didn't know that Lawson was telling Newton everything. But even if he had... There was probably little he could have done to save himself. He didn't even really know what he was being charged with, and he had little idea of who else, beyond Thomas Carter and Thomas Holloway, Isaac Newton might be bringing as witness. Like most people awaiting trial at Newgate, Chaloner would have been conducting his own defense. At this time, people accused of most crimes were not permitted a defense lawyer. The only exception was in cases of high treason, which, technically, counterfeiting was. This was to curb abuse of the charge by the sovereign. But counterfeiting wasn't that type of high treason, evidently, so coiners and clippers still didn't get defense lawyers. So Chaloner was grasping at straws. Chaloner wrote to Secretary of State James Vernon and to Newton to claim that the whole malt ticket scam was Carter's plot to ensnare Chaloner in some, quote, mischief. What's more... Carter, he said, was nothing more than a rogue and a criminal. For I have such a man to be evidence against me that will not stick at anything to swear to get his own liberty. He was once taken for coining and stealing horses and put in Warwick Jail. He has been six times in the pillory in London and one in the country for forgery and perjury. He robbed his master and was put in the counter and got out in woman's clothes. He has gone by several names. He has been in most jails in England. I discovered and convicted him of forgery, but he got out of jail, so I know he will do me all the hurt he can. Chaloner tried to appeal directly to Newton, the man he saw as both the author of all of his sufferings and the only person who could end them. 
I beg you will not continue your displeasure against me, for I have suffered very much. I wholly throw myself upon your great goodness. I am, sir, your most humble and obedient servant. His letters to Newton were increasingly desperate, increasingly willing to give up whatever he could to save himself. Sir, in obedience to your worship, I will give you the best account I can remember. I shall be glad to do any service to the government that is in my power. If I intended to have anything to do in counterfeiting of malt tickets, then I desire God Almighty may never receive my soul. I have been guilty of no crime these six years. If he'd ever said that he could engrave plates and make coin, well, that was in jest. It was a joke. That whole thing in front of Parliament accusing the mint of corruption, he'd been forced to testify, honest. And this whole malt ticket scam, this was obviously worked up by that David Davis to get money out of the government. Oh, for God's sake, do not for suspicions and suggestions seem real truth. And so let me go murdered out of the world. Oh, let your great goodness be known to the world by being merciful to me. Challoner's mental state was clearly deteriorating. By the time he wrote to Justice Railton, the local magistrate supervising the case, he said, I am so very ill, I cannot hold my pens. Newton, of course, never responded to any of Challoner's letters. Why would he? He had all that he needed. The rope, wound from the testimonies of so many people, was around Challoner's neck already. It just needed a good tightening. On March 1st, 1699, the grand jury met at the Guildhall, the sort of city hall for the city of London. This was a hearing to determine whether the indictments against Challoner should go ahead and to give Challoner a chance to plead. He might have been surprised to learn then and there that he was being charged with three counts of counterfeiting, offenses dating back seven years and not, as he thought, the malt lottery ticket scam. At first, he refused to speak, a last-ditch effort to delay his trial. Then he claimed he'd been mad these last three weeks. To which a worthy justice on the bench made answer that, to his knowledge, he had been so for as many years. Towner eventually pleaded not guilty. His trial took place just a few hours later, this time at the Old Bailey, the open-air courtroom attached to Newgate. The judge, Salafield Lovell, was infamously ruthless and corrupt and was no believer in innocent until proven guilty, which, to be fair, wasn't really a thing back then. From the moment Challoner was described as notorious by the judge, he must have known things were not going to go well. He was put upon his trial, wherein there were a whole cloud of witnesses against him. I saw William Chandler. In June or July, he told me that he intended to make As well of old as more late offenses. One swore 
that she had seen him make some thousand pistols. And I told him he would come to be hanged for it as price was. Another, that she'd seen him do the like by guineas. Chaloner would give Thomas 20 A third, that he knew him to have made abundance of money of all sorts. I could perceive something very bright lying before him, which looked like a plate. In short, the evidence was very plain and positive to all which he made but an indifferent defence, but was very saucy in the court, affronting Mr. Recorder divers times. Challoner's trial probably didn't last more than a half an hour. We know that he would have had only his own word to defend himself, that he would have stood at the bar, the cold March air at his back, facing the judge and jury on a raised platform in front of him. But he would have stood as witness after witness, some people he'd once have called friends, would place the dyes and the molds in his hands, or the pewter shillings or the gilded guineas, and they would say they saw him do it. He was innocent, he said. He was set up. The court did not agree. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. 
Act Two, The End. Challoner didn't take his sentencing well. All those times he'd slipped through the iron fingers of justice, he probably couldn't believe that this was it. After his condemnation, he was continually crying out. He struggled and flounced about for life like a whale struck with a harping iron, so that the warrant for his execution being signed, he was amongst the number appointed to die. When that fatal story reached his ears, he bellowed and roared worse than an Irish woman at a funeral. Nothing but murder. 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 Oh, oh, I am, I am murdered, murdered. Was to be heard from him. Nothing could be thought on to make him take that patiently, which he must embrace whether he would or no. And indeed, a man who makes no conscience in his life may well tremble at the approaches of death. Newton received one last desperate letter from Challoner, just two days before his execution. Oh dear sir, nobody can save me but you. Challoner had crossed Isaac Newton. He had insulted him. He had insulted the crown. Oh God, my God, I shall be murdered unless you save me. Newton rarely forgave, and he damn sure didn't forget. Oh, I hope God will move your heart with mercy and pity to do this thing for me. Newton never wrote back. Your near murdered, humble servant, W. Challoner. The night before Challoner was strung up on the Tyburn tree, the sexton of St. Sepulchre without Newgate, the church just outside Newgate's walls, rang a handbell under his window and the windows of the others faded to die the next day. As he rang the bell, he repeated the same poem that hundreds of other condemned people had heard before this night. All you that in the condemned hold do lie, prepare you, for tomorrow you shall die. Watch all and pray, the hour is drawing near, that you before the Almighty must appear. Examine well yourselves, in time repent, that you may not to eternal flames be sent. And when Saint Sepulchre's bell tomorrow tolls, the Lord above have mercy on your soul. Challoner probably didn't sleep. At noon the next day, the morning bells of St. Sepulchre rang. Challoner was ushered into the condemned room at Newgate, where his iron shackles were removed and his hands bound with simple rope. He was thin, haggard, probably coughing, and undoubtedly itching with lice. Shortly after noon, Challoner left Newgate prison for the last time. He was bundled into an open sled dragged by a horse, open, so that everyone could see him and shame him. The procession paused at St. Sepulchre's. The vicar was obligated to once again remind them, and everyone else watching, 
that they were about to die. All good people, pray heartily unto God for these poor sinners who are now going to their death, for whom this great bell doth toll. You that are condemned to die, repent with lamentable tears. Ask mercy of the Lord for the salvation of your own souls. Lord, have mercy upon you. Christ, have mercy upon you. This was the atmosphere that the authorities wanted. This solemnity, this quaking terror, this public shame. This was what was supposed to keep other people from attempting the same crimes. What they got, however, was often more like a carnival. As Chaloner and his fellow condemned made their way through the city to the Tyburn tree, people lined the streets and hung from the windows. Some people threw things at the passing procession, although what they threw depended on the crime. When the convicted were well-liked, women blew kisses, and according to one contemporary writer, many of the condemned were, quote, on good terms with the mob, and jokes were exchanged between the men who were going to be hanged and the men who deserved to be. Pickpockets and thieves plied their trade throughout the crowds, even as the example of what could happen to them if they were caught processed past. He's got a loose purse. Oh, pardon me, sir. Challoner, however, was probably not catching kisses or joking. Counterfeiters were often among the most reviled of criminals. People hated them for making life difficult for everyone else and for undermining trust in the currency and the economy. Serve them right. He'd have been cursed at, hit with mud and rotten food or worse. Filthy corner! Though the Tyburn Tree was less than three miles from Newgate, it took the procession more than two hours to reach it, owing to the crowds and to that final stop at the pub nearest the tree for one last pint. Hang him! Hang him! Hang him! An even larger crowd awaited the notorious challenger when he arrived at the tree. The luckiest were those who rented pews and benches nearest the scaffold. Everyone else had to stand on tiptoe to witness the hanging. The Tyburn Triple Tree, three horizontal beams 18 feet in the air, was capable of executing 24 prisoners all at once, but it rarely had so many. That's what you deserve, you black-hearted villain! It's unknown how many others were executed the day Challoner was, although he wasn't alone. When the moment came, Challoner stood before the tree and the crowd's hands bound, He's still proclaiming his innocence. Kill the coiner! Hang the I am innocent! Lord, have mercy upon you. Christ, have mercy upon you. Murdered by perjury and injustice and pretense of law and by the warden of the mint himself. You know that Challoner didn't get away with it. And you know already that Isaac Newton wasn't there to watch him hang. But that anonymous biographer was. Within weeks of Challoner's execution, the pamphlet was printed and being sold on the same streets where Challoner had only lately sold his counterfeit coins. It concluded, Thus lived and thus died a man 
who had he squared his talent by the rules of justice and integrity, might have been useful to the Commonwealth. But as he followed only the dictates of vice, was as a rotten member cut off. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. Epilogue. Money for nothing. So can I get a pint of London Pride, please? And I will come over here and pay with my Apple Pay. Okay. Put my passcode in here. There we go, just like magic. Wonderful, thank you so, so much. Okay, so I am just bought my pint at the Devereux, which is a very historic pub in central London. Um, this used to be the Grecian coffee house, which was where Isaac Newton, Samuel Pepys, and so many other people would come um, to chat about royal society stuff. 
So I'm also sitting in the Isaac Newton booth, and I've got a great picture here of Isaac Newton on the wall. We've got some some paintings of him in and his telescope. This is definitely a place that's dedicated to Newton. Here at this pub, you know, there aren't newspapers on the table. There's no pamphlets. It's mostly because everybody's reading stuff on their phone. And the thing that I just paid with, this digital representation of the money in my bank account, well, that would just be bonkers to the 17th century coffee lover or pub goer. But that's all the stuff on the surface because lots of other things haven't changed. Those questions about money, about the kinds of things that could be money, whether it's bits of hand-hammered metal with the king's head on them, or paper, or lotto tickets, those ideas coalesced into the utterly bizarre fact that I can use my phone to pay for my pints or my dishes of coffee. Can you tell that that was like my first time doing it? Because now I genuinely don't know what my actual wallet exists for. Anyway, a big theme of this podcast has been that money is only valuable because we all agree, all believe that it has value. We thought gold and silver had value, and it does. So it made sense to use that as a medium of exchange. Then we believed that the word of the government was actually enough. In 1933, FDR took the U.S. off the gold standard, two years after Britain had already done the same. But the fact that U.S. money is backed not by a random precious metal, but by a governmental guarantee, that's what's called fiat currency, is part of the reason that people have recently been talking about a trillion-dollar coin. A $1 trillion coin, a gazillion dollar debt limit, removing Congress from the equation. Those are among Democrats' proposed solutions to the debt ceiling standoff. The idea is that the U.S. is once again about to hit its debt ceiling. Now, remember the national debt thing we invented back in episode two? And by we, I mean English Parliament. Anyway, the U.S. reaching its debt ceiling, the amount of money that it's allowed to borrow to keep the lights on, this happens a bit. The conflict happens when Congress refuses to raise the debt ceiling. Then government shutdown ensues. But the Treasury Secretary can theoretically solve that. Janet Yellen could bypass Congress and issue a single $1 trillion coin made from platinum. She would then deposit it in the Federal Reserve, just like it's a real account, and thus provide the country with enough money to pay its bills, no more borrowing necessary. As in, one coin that is worth more than the GDPs of Greece, Colombia, Poland, a whole bunch of other countries. A coin that is essentially performing, albeit legally, the same trick that Chaloner did. Making money from nothing. As of this recording, Yellen hasn't, and the Biden administration very probably won't, mint that coin, although the deadlock in Congress is certainly making this idea more appealing. Now, another reason that we're talking about the trillion-dollar coin, beyond the mere fact that because of fiat currency, it's possible, is that other thing that was becoming important in Newton's time, mass media. The trillion-dollar coin idea was floated by the White House privately back in 2011, but it wouldn't really be a thing now if it hadn't been given air on multiple platforms. Paul Krugman, in an opinion for The New York Times, Bloomberg podcasts declaring it's not a joke, hashtag mint the coin, among many others. 
that these kinds of debates about monetary policy shouldn't just happen amongst the bunch of old, rich, white dudes who make the policy most definitely has its antecedents in pamphlets like Peter Blondeau's humble suggestions to the moneyers. The money coined with the ammo cannot be made exactly round. And William Challoner's proposals to fix the coins. Now England hath been more grieved with clipped and counterfeit money so, than any other... So, yay, more oxygen for good ideas. And boo, more oxygen for bad ones. So this trillion-dollar coin... Is it a good idea or a bad idea? Janet Yellen certainly thinks it's a bad idea. She said so. And if your entire currency is based on trust, magicking money out of literally nothing doesn't do much to shore up that trust. It doesn't help the inflation situation. And it also, rather uncomfortably, blurs the lines between monetary policy, which is meant to be independent of politics, and fiscal policy, which is laid out by elected politicians. On the other hand, if anyone wants to get that old counterfeiting forge fired up, now's the time. All this talk about trust and made-up coins and national debt has me thinking. What if you don't want to trust the government anymore? Could something else be money, even if it's not backed by that governmental guarantee? How about a bunch of code? How about cryptocurrency? Cryptocurrencies are exciting because they're decentralized, they're not tied to or controlled by a government or a central bank. The first cryptocurrencies started appearing in the mid-1990s. But eCash had a hard time getting off the ground because you can be all, this is money, trust us people. But people won't unless they have a compelling reason to. And then came Bitcoin, which solved one of the main problems of digital currency, making it trustable. Basically, Bitcoin uses blockchain, which is a huge chain-link database that acts as a ledger of transactions, proof of value. Notably, blockchain can be used for any data, really, not just financial services. The database is maintained by many different people, so there's no central agency that monitors or controls it, and it's open, transparent, immutable. But it's not completely bulletproof. As William Chaloner recognized back in 1694, 1695, a big seismic change in the landscape of really important stuff like money is also going to throw up new opportunities for exploiting that landscape. Tom Levinson. When you do something new in the world of finance, some people will understand it better than others. Unscrupulous people who understand it well will take advantage of those others. When it's something really new and interesting, Um, Not even the people who think they know it the best, you know, will grasp all the possibilities, including the negative possibilities, the unintended consequences. And that's something that recurs over and over again. Challenger forged banknotes and lottery tickets because these were new, weird, untried things, and he could. And some modern-day Challengers are basically doing the same thing. Consider the story of OneCoin. Back in 2016, OneCoin was going to be bigger than Bitcoin. Founder Ruja Ignatova from the stage at Wembley Arena in North London to thousands of hyped-up investors promised that it would be. This network was created to become and to fuel the growth of OneCoin. 
which I strongly believe will be the number one cryptocurrency worldwide. What OneCoin actually was, was a massive multi-level marketing scam, better known as a Ponzi scheme. OneCoin didn't have what Bitcoin did, a blockchain, and without it, the numbers, the quote value of those OneCoins were meaningless. OneCoin itself could say it was worth whatever they wanted it to be. Now, no one knew this, though, so people invested in it. Lots of people. Exactly how much money OneCoin took in is hard to say. Some reports say 4 billion euros. Others put it as high as 15 billion euros. This was money from regular people, people who thought they were making a wise investment in an up-and-coming market. On October 25th, 2017, Dr. Ruja Ignatova boarded a flight from Sofia, Bulgaria to Athens. And that was the last anyone saw or heard of her or the billions of euros she stole again. Ignatova, more or less, got away with it. Where's Isaac Newton when you need him, am I right? Well, Newton might have sniffed out this kind of fraud or... He might have gotten caught up in it, just like he did back in 1720. So what made OneCoin plausible, what made people think it was real, is because the idea of making a lot of money very quickly is always appealing, but also because of the financial instruments that were emerging in Newton's time. And Newton may have really understood the principles of things like representational money and speculation But that didn't stop him from getting burned in what would be called the South Sea bubble. So a bubble is when an asset or commodity suddenly spikes in value far above its, quote, real value. That's the bubble inflating. And then, just as suddenly, pops value plummeting. Think the dot-com bubble or housing. Why bubbles happen is a big part of behavioral economics, but suffice to say, They're hard to predict and even harder to ride out. The South Sea bubble did have approximate cause, however. In 1720, the House of Lords gave the South Sea Company, a joint stock company, a monopoly on trade with South America in exchange for seven million pounds to finance a war with, you guessed it, France. The money also went to underwrite the national debt, that thing that had just been created in 1694 with the Bank of England. Overnight, shares in the South Sea Company exploded in value. Think like the whole GameStop situation, but pull in the national debt and a bunch of literal bigwigs, and you've got the idea. Tom Levinson explains. The bubble was just this huge social and cultural carnival for a while, and people went money mad, and there are these fabulous cartoons and, and satirical poems and, and you know, nasty moralistic plays and all this that, that center around this sort of way greed and money mania took over England at the time. Uh, but lots of people got snared in it. The problem was... The South Sea Company wasn't really doing any actual trading. And soon, the bubble popped. The richest man in England, the Duke of Portland, lost his shirt and ultimately his life to speculations in the South Sea bubble. And to me, the most striking thing is that, you know, the one person in Europe you could count on to understand the underlying mathematics of the financial transaction being proposed in the South Sea bubble, the person who really, really knew, you know, how to calculate that, yeah, in fact, 
the things that were happening to South Sea stock were just unsustainable. That man was Isaac Newton, and he lost a ton in the bubble. He too got caught in the emotions of the moment and the desire for wealth uh, in the most, in some ways, personally humiliating way. You know, he had had investments in the South Sea Company for, for many years before and had made a, a good, tidy, respectable profit on it. And when the bubble started inflating in, uh, in the spring of 1720, he looked at his growing profit and said, you know, I've made enough money and he sold all the shares. But the bubble continued to expand and it went to more than double the price he sold uh, his shares at. And that apparently drove Newton bonkers. So he got back in at the very top of the market and he kept buying for another two months as the market hovered near its top. And, you know, his last purchase of South Sea shares was like two weeks before the crash. And, uh, and he lost tens of thousands of pounds, which is millions of pounds in 21st century money. Now, don't be too sad for poor Newton. He wasn't left destitute. He still had a very good gig with the Royal Mint, although he was no longer the warden. Not long after Challoner's execution, Thomas Neal, the useless master of the mint, died. Newton, who'd basically done his job and more during the recoinage, was offered the position. He started on Christmas Day, 1699. No more crook catching for him, although he probably didn't mind. Though the two positions were on similar levels of authority and salary, the master also took a fee for every pound of metal coined at the mint. Newton had done that for years, squirreling it away, investing some, doing very well for himself. But obviously, losing his shirt was pretty irritating. He apparently said to his niece, who, who uh, he was very close to, you know, I can predict the motions of the heavenly bodies, but not the madness of crowds. Madness of the people, I think is the word. And, you know, what's funny about that quote is, of course, he was one of the people. He couldn't predict his own madness. That was what so galled him. He lost control. You know, this famously tightly wound and rigid personality lost his reasoning mind around money for a while. But the whole speculation thing, the money being made hand over fist, the growing economy, that had some other attendant effects. Now, this isn't exactly causal or linear, but here's some of what was happening. People thanks to these exciting financial instruments, had more money. More money meant, quite literally, more problems. The more stuff and property people had, the more they wanted to protect it and others wanted to steal it. In the years after Newton was running his operations, it was clear that something more needed to be done to deter crime, especially property crime. But as we've said over and over, there was no agency charged with dealing with crime. So what's a 17th, 18th century lawmaker to do in the face of rising property crime? Legal historian Harry Potter explains. That was when you really got the growth of uh, capital punishment being used routinely for um, minor property offenses. Because uh, John, John Locke, for instance, in 1690 said that the sole end of government is the preservation of property and property was undefended. Already, a significant number of crimes were punishable by death, counterfeiting, obviously, one of them. But after the Waltham Black Act of 1723, upwards of 200 offenses, such as pickpocketing, shoplifting, arson, attempting arson, poaching, all became capital offenses. 
But even with all those new capital crimes, through the 19th century, counterfeiting was one of the top reasons people were executed in England and Wales. Between 1805 and 1818, one out of every five executed criminals was a convicted forger or counterfeiter. That stat shot up to one out of three in London and the adjoining Middlesex County. The act was repealed about a century later, after it was clear that the threat of death didn't actually do much to deter crime. Policemen, on their hand, could be helpful, maybe, maybe not. For all Isaac Newton's great work in stamping out counterfeit coins, fake coin makers didn't just suddenly stop production because Isaac Newton was on the case. Capital punishment didn't work. Policing only sort of worked. Counterfeiting isn't called the second oldest profession for nothing. Back in 2017, we, all of us living in Britain, were supposed to trade in our old one-pound coins. These coins had been around since 1988, and they read, around the edges, Decus et Tudemen. But that decoration and a safeguard had evidently not been enough The reason we needed new coins was because, according to an audit in 2014, as much as 3% of the coins in circulation were fakes. The new 12-sided one-pound coin is the most secure coin in the world. It has a number of features that make it much more difficult to counterfeit. It has a bimetallic composition of two colors, with a gold-color nickel brass outer and a silver-colored nickel-plated inner. It has a latent image on the front that changes from a pound symbol to the number one when the coin is seen from different angles. The coin's design reflects United Kingdom's heritage and superb craftsmanship. The The new high-tech coin was meant to be impossible to fake. Except it wasn't. Within a year of the coin's release, reports of fake 12-sided coins began circulating. These fakes were less detailed, less precise than the real thing, but they did the trick. It almost didn't matter if they were real or not as long as they were being traded. Now, there was no warden of the Royal Mint at the time of that recoinage. I don't know, maybe if there had been, I wouldn't still have a few worthless old pound coins jangling in change cups. The job that Newton had done so admirably was actually dissolved in 1829. Newton lived in London and remained master of the mint until the year he died, 1727. He'd been knighted by Queen Anne back in 1705, not surprisingly for his services to science or the mint, but just because of contemporary politics. By the way, that's why we didn't refer to him as Sir Isaac, because he wasn't one yet. He was buried at Westminster Abbey alongside kings and queens and martyrs and heroes, the great and the good. Newton's legacy as a scientist, a word that didn't actually exist until 1833, by the way, has far outshined his legacy as the able administrator of the Mint or even as the bane of London's counterfeiting gangs. It's the scientist Newton whose statue stands, well, hunches, really, in the courtyard of the British Library and whose portrait hangs in the Newton corner at the Devereux pub with his prisms and telescope and apple. It's that Newton who appeared on the one-pound note in 1978. Big, curly wig atop his head, the Principia open on his lap. Currency acts as symbolic representation, not only of monetary value, but also social values. 
It tells a story about the people who use it. That's why we put pictures on it. Newton's portrait on the one-pound note traded for pints of beer and dishes of coffee stashed in purses and wallets dropped in the streets further cemented his legacy as a scientist. In 2017, the Royal Mint commemorated Sir Isaac Newton's 375th birthday with, of course, a coin. And once again, it was Newton the scientist, not Newton the cop or Newton the master of the mint who was represented. Now, I know you can't fit a life on a coin, but still, maybe a coin is a fitting testament to a man who not only laid the groundwork for how we understand our universe, but who also rescued English money from clippers and coiners. The coin, a 50 pence piece featuring a map of the solar system, was never circulated, but you can still buy it on one of those collector websites or eBay for, well, a lot more than 50 pence. Just make sure it's the real deal. Newton's Law is a production of iHeartRadio. It's written and hosted by me, Linda Rodriguez-McRobbie. Our senior producer is Ryan Murdoch. Our producer is Emily Marinoff. Our executive producer is Jason English. Original music by Elise McCoy with editing help from Mary Dew. Sound design and mixing by Jeremy Thal. Research and fact-checking by me and Jocelyn Sears. Our show logo is designed by Lucy Quintanilla. Big thanks to our voice actors throughout the series. Keith Fleming, Mark McDonald, Robert Jack, Paul Tinto, Ruthie Stevens, Emma Falkins, and our favorite street urchins, Austin Rodriguez-McRobbie and Edwin Rodriguez-McRobbie. What did you get? I got the purse. As always, special thanks to our experts, Chris Barker, Dr. Patricia Farah, Tom Levinson, Joad Raymond, and Harry Potter. Special thanks to Mangesh Hatekadur, Finiflex Sound Studios, and the Modern Royal Mint. If you enjoyed Newton's Law, please leave us a rating and a comment. You might also enjoy other iHeart Originals, such as Black Cowboys and Operation Midnight Climax. In our next iHeart Original series, we'll transport you to the 90s, the 1990s, to find out what happened when the world's biggest movie star took over a small town in Idaho. Keep an eye out for Haleywood on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your favorite shows. And thanks for listening. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable.
Bring spring color inside this season with Bare Premium Plus paint, starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bare exclusive color Arrowhead Lake or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass or accent your bedroom with sunrise-inspired colors like coral cloud and dark crimson. Let your creativity bloom this spring with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done.